The United States Supreme Court is the highest court in the nation. It's the court whose decisions and judgments touch all American lives. And the court whose justices serve lifetime appointments. Given its incredible significance, those who are nominated to be Supreme Court justices undergo an extensive confirmation process in the Senate. That confirmation process for President Trump's Supreme Court pick, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, is underway. And it has been tumultuous. As the hearings were winding down and coming close to a vote last week, news broke. Woman has come forward publicly accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of assaulting her at a party more than 30 years. That's when they were both in high school, more than 30 years ago. According to the Washington Post, the woman's name is Christine Blasey Ford. She's a professor at Palo The Washington Alto Post University. reported that Professor Christine Blasey Ford wrote a confidential letter to a Democratic lawmaker alleging that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her in high school. Since those allegations surfaced, there has been a bitter partisan battle over how they should factor into Kavanaugh's confirmation process. As for Kavanaugh, he's repeatedly denied the allegations in statements and on Fox News. I've never sexually assaulted anyone, not in high school, not ever. But now, on Thursday, the Senate Judiciary Committee is scheduled to hear testimony not only from Kavanaugh, but from Dr. Ford herself. Kavanaugh is President Trump's pick for the court, so as you might imagine, Trump has not stayed silent as these developments have unfolded. I am with them all the way. We'll see how it goes with the Senate. We'll see how it goes with the vote. I think it could be, there's a chance that this could be one of the single most unfair, unjust things to happen to a candidate for anything. He's expressed support for Kavanaugh and a desire to move quickly through the confirmation process. Trump's ramped up that public support for his nominee, even as two additional allegations from two new accusers have emerged in recent days. As midterm elections approach, as the Mueller investigation continues, and as Republicans have a chance to rebalance the court, a lot is at stake. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. We're bringing you this episode early in the week so that you know exactly what to watch for at the hearings tomorrow. And with news breaking on this story regularly, we're offering a moment to catch up and assess how much Kavanaugh's confirmation process matters for President Trump. To help us do this, Amber Phillips is here. She's a political reporter at The Washington Post. Amber, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. So just so we understand from a basic level, how does a confirmation process for a Supreme Court nominee usually work? Yeah, it's pretty simple. When there's a vacancy, the president nominates someone, and it's Congress's job, specifically the Senate's, to advise and consent is what the Constitution says. Since the start of our country, we've determined that that means the Senate gets to vote on that person and confirm them to the Supreme Court. Okay, and in the case of Judge Kavanaugh, what is the makeup of the Senate that he's currently facing? Judge Kavanaugh is facing a Republican-controlled Senate. Uh, so Republicans get to control this process, and he only needs a majority of votes to get on the Supreme Court. That's different from a couple years ago where you could traditionally filibuster, the minority could filibuster a Supreme Court nominee and require 60 votes to put someone on the Supreme Court. 
But Republicans and Democrats are both to blame for essentially changing those rules. So this is only the second time that a Supreme Court nominee is going to get approved under these new rules where you just need 50, 51 votes. Given that you only need 50 votes in this case, basically he just needs Republicans here. So there doesn't need to be bipartisan support of Kavanaugh. Yep, that's exactly right. Republicans control the process. They get to do what they want, and he could get on with just Republican votes. So let's talk a little bit about the four or five senators who this process might hinge on. We have Senator Susan Collins. We have Murkowski. We have Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, right? Yeah, these are these are the Republicans who it looks or they've expressed the most willingness to oppose Kavanaugh for various reasons. But it's important to note that until these allegations came out, pretty much all four of those and everyone else in the Republican caucus was lining up for Kavanaugh. To the two moderate women you just listed, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, were concerned about his views on abortion. Then these allegations came out, and not only have they expressed a concern about him getting on the court and, and wanting to hear his accuser out, Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, who are two Republicans who are retiring, who have been afraid to stick it to Trump in the past, have said the same thing. Then let's talk about these allegations specifically. What are the allegations against Judge Kavanaugh? So there are two very specific allegations. The first one is that at a high school party, he pinned down a woman, Christine Blasey Ford, to a bed. He tried to take off her clothes. He stifled her screams with his mouth. And there was a friend in the room laughing in her words, maniacally. And she escaped when he toppled on all of them and she ran out the door. The second one comes from Kavanaugh's time at Yale Law School in his first year, just a couple of years later. This woman, Deborah Ramirez, alleges that a group of them were all drinking in a dorm and he exposes genitalia to her. There is another potential allegation. There is this prominent lawyer, Michael Avenatti. He's representing Stormy Daniels, uh, this porn star, in a hush money case against the president who claims that he has an accuser that he'll bring forward. He hasn't yet. We don't know much more about it. Now, of course, because the news stops for no podcast, just as we were recording this, Michael Avenatti tweeted about a third accuser. Julie Swetnick, Avenatti's client, accused Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct. Swetnick says he was physically abusive toward girls in high school. Her accusations include that he was present at a house party in 1982, where Swetnick says she was the victim of a gang rape. In response to those allegations, a statement from Kavanaugh said, This is ridiculous and from the twilight zone. I don't know who this is and this never happened. Now, in response to all of this, President Trump tweeted calling Avenatti, quote, a third-rate lawyer who is good at making false accusations. Now, this story is still developing, but Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has now called upon Republicans to suspend Kavanaugh's confirmation proceedings until a thorough investigation can happen. That's unlikely. But for now, back to my conversation with Amber. How have these allegations so far affected the timeline of Kavanaugh's confirmation? So it depends what happens after Thursday's hearing. Even before all this, Senate Republicans are hoping to have a full vote right around today to get them on the court by next week. Now, at the earliest, they won't have that vote until next week, and they're really under the wire to get that done. The reason they're racing is they want to get him on the court by the October 1st term. That means he'd get to sit on the court for a whole bunch of different cases and not have to miss any of that. And then Republicans also would get to go home and campaign in November on firming up the court's 5-4 conservative majority. Now, 
Thursday's hearing, a lot hinges on that because as we talked about, there are Republican senators who say, I don't know how I feel about supporting Kavanaugh right now. It looks like the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's been very bullish on getting Kavanaugh on the court, will put him up for vote next week no matter what. If Kavanaugh loses that vote, uh, we don't know what happens. The whole process has to start all over. And looking at the calendar, there's just no way that can get done by the November midterm elections, which is the real deadline everyone should have in their heads here. Yeah. So I want to talk more about those details in a little bit. But before we get there, let's talk about what the hearings are going to look like on Thursday. Who is testifying? What are the circumstances of that testimony? So details have been foggy right up to the last minute. It looks like, and they could change. I should caveat with that. It looks like there will be only two people testifying, Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. So the first accuser uh, in this situation. Guidelines from the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, because again, they control the Congress, they control this committee, they control the process, is that each senator gets to ask questions of Dr. Ford and Kavanaugh about five-ish minutes. They'll go at separate times, so they won't be in the same room. This will all be aired live because that's typically the way the Senate works is to air its committee hearings live. But there's a wrinkle in all that. Republicans have decided to bring in an outside lawyer, a woman, to ask their questions for them. They're essentially handing off their duties to look into a Supreme Court justice's fitness for the role. And there's a big political reason for that. They don't want to have 11 men, which is how many Republicans they have on the court, essentially asking this woman and interrogating her about her sexual proclivities and drinking. And it it could just get really messy, even messier than it already is for Republicans. So how unusual is it for them to have hired a lawyer? Really unusual. Again, this is Congress's job. They get to ask questions. Why would they hand that off to someone else? My colleague Paul Kane, who's an encyclopedia basically for this stuff, said the last time that Congress brought in an outside lawyer to do its job for them was in 1998 during the Clinton impeachment hearings. And even then, obviously it was a very political moment, but it wasn't right before the midterms. It just, this feels extraordinary. Okay. Well, given that it's extraordinary, what is the Senate Judiciary Committee trying to learn? Or what is the Senate as a whole trying to learn from these hearings? It depends who you ask what they're trying to learn from these hearings, because both sides have made pretty clear that they have a political agenda. (laughs) Democrats don't want this guy on the court. Republicans do. And a lot of Republicans on this committee have expressed not only skepticism about Dr. Ford's story, but outright said their intention is to give her a chance to hear her out, but but move forward to get Judge Kavanaugh on the court. So it's tough because I guess the, the on paper reason for having this hearing is to see if a Supreme Court justice uh, allegedly tried to rape someone in high school and have that accuser come out and speak. Uh, but it's pretty clear that both sides are going to go into this trying to frame it as, yes, he did. No, he didn't. So do you imagine there's some sort of pivotal moment or piece of testimony that could sway these four to five senators who are on the cusp? It's very difficult to say. Even these senators, they've been pressed by reporters on Capitol Hill all this week to answer that very question. And they just said, we'll be watching closely. She's going into a process controlled by Republicans who very much don't want any of this to be happening right now. And we're seeing in the hours leading up to this hearing that she's trying to bolster 
her credibility by bringing forward affidavits of people that who say that she talked to them in the years before Kavanaugh was even a Supreme Court nominee about this assault. And so what she's trying to do is bolster her words and her story, which have been consistent up until this point with some kind of data or documents. And it just depends how well that comes across and how well she comes across, I think. What are the possibilities after this hearing? The Senate Judiciary Committee is supposed to vote 930 Friday morning. What are the possible outcomes? Yeah, Republicans are in a rush and they are not they are not hesitating to have this hearing and, and move forward. Possible outcomes are that Republicans vote for Kavanaugh to be Supreme Court justice. So they would vote him out with what's called a favorable committee vote. And that would just give him more momentum once he gets to the full Senate. Another possible outcome, or I should say likely outcome, is Senator Jeff Flake, who is of all those four senators we talked about earlier is on the fence. He's the only one on this committee. Votes against him. That wouldn't sink his nomination, but it would make the committee send him out with an unfavorable outcome. And so it would be even harder politically for Republicans in the full Senate to try to approve Kavanaugh if a Republican-controlled committee couldn't agree to get him out. There's a third option, which I'm just going to call the wild card, which is nobody knows what could happen. I, it depends on how both sides come across in the hearing. Do more Republicans decide that Kavanaugh shouldn't be on the Supreme Court? Uh, does he win over some Democrats? That's the least likely option, I think, given there are no moderate Democrats on this committee. So there's a fourth option we need to consider. It's if Kavanaugh doesn't perform well, do Republicans or the White House force him to withdraw his nomination? And how much would a failure to confirm him either through withdrawal or through people voting to oppose him, how would that reflect on Republicans? It would be brutal for Republicans. They control all of Washington, right? The White House. Congress. They managed to get one of Trump's picks on the Supreme Court last year. They now have this swing vote, Justice Kennedy, who has retired, and a chance to firm up the court's 5-4 majority. So there wouldn't really be any more swing votes. It's right before a midterm election. They could go home and campaign on this. And, and there's evidence that the conservative base really, really values conservative judges and a conservative judicial system more than liberals do. So for them to fail with everything handed to them on a platter would would be a disaster. And some Republican voters have expressed some remiss about Trump and his actions, but they've said that as long as we can have a conservative court, then it's all worth it. How does how will this play out for conservative voters then? Yeah, that is spot on is um, some of those independent leaning soft voters on Trump, you know, say they voted for him in the 2016 election to be able to have moments like last year and this moment for the Supreme Court. The risk for Republicans is those guys don't show up to vote, say, in tough congressional races, especially in the House and suburbs and Minnesota and Michigan and Florida. And the November midterm elections are in a country that's so polarized, this is going to be a game of who can get their base out more. Normally, Democrats are really bad at that in congressional elections. This year, there's lots of evidence they'll be fantastic at it. So they really need their Republicans really need their base to show up. And the risk is that some of those people who don't really support Trump and kind of on the fence about where the Republican Party is going under Trump just throw up their hands and don't show up to vote. And what about Democrats? So they have 
been a part of these allegations coming to the forefront, and they've obviously stalled the confirmation process of, of Judge Kavanaugh. Will those things reflect poorly on them if he goes ahead and is confirmed anyway, or will they reflect positively on the Democrats? How will it play out for them? So it's hard to say how this will play out for Democrats, because when this all started, they were already on the losing end end of this. When Justice Kennedy announced he was going to retire this summer, there was no way Democrats foresaw this moment to potentially stop President Trump's nominee. They're in the minority. They can't stop him. So to some extent, their base was kind of expecting a loss. However, we saw during Kavanaugh's original confirmation hearing earlier this month that their base really demanded they at least try to stick it to Kavanaugh as much as possible. So you saw Democratic senators ask really flashy questions, hinting that he somehow had a hand in the Russia investigation and influencing it. And they, they had no evidence for this stuff, but they threw it out anyway. Uh, trying, they tried to forestall the whole hearings. And that was them signaling to their base, at least we're fighting against this. Especially given what happened to the nominee Merrick Garland under the Obama administration. Exactly. Merrick Garland is such a buzzword on the left right now. Democrats have not forgotten that Republicans, who again controlled the Senate in 2016 again, and thus the process, held up President Obama's pick for the Supreme Court. Okay, then let's talk about the importance of the Supreme Court. Obviously, it controls all of the law in the land. But What particularly at this moment in time is at stake when it comes to the balance of the court? What's at stake? To take it to the extreme, nothing less than President Trump and his Mm -hmm. presidency. Mm -hmm. And I say that because uh, in the independent Russia investigation, uh, special counsel Robert Mueller and President Trump are are at a logjam right now. Mueller has said, this is all through our Washington Post reporting, hey, sit down with me. Uh, let's answer some questions. And then outside experts have suggested that would kind of be the beginning of the end of this investigation. Trump has for months and months and months refused. Mueller, we've reported, has threatened to subpoena him. Legal experts I've talked to say it's an open question if you can subpoena the president. Depends who you talk to. They'll say yes. They'll say no. What they all agree on is it would probably end up in the court's and wind its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So if Trump has a friendlier court, a more conservative court, especially a guy like Kavanaugh, who has expressed willingness to give the president more authority uh, in these types of situations, that could be a good thing for him. That like He wouldn't have to sit down with the special counsel. That could derail the entire special counsel investigation. And some of Trump's policies can also rise to the level of the Supreme Court, as we saw in the case of his immigration ban, correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Democrats, because they don't control Congress, have really struggled with how to stop Trump's policies. So they have had some success in, in the judicial branch, where you have Democratic attorneys general trying to sue whenever Trump launches something like his travel ban or separating families at the border. That winds its way up to the court. Right. And of course, if he fails to confirm a justice to the court, a conservative justice to the court before the midterms, as you've mentioned, and the Democrats go ahead and flip the House, that and possibly the Senate, that raises additional challenges for Trump. Yeah. It it essentially hands Democrats the authority to control the process. Uh, It would president is still the one who gets to nominate who the next Supreme Court justice is. But 
he knows that Democrats aren't going to approve someone like Kavanaugh, someone who's very traditionally conservative. Uh, so it puts him in a box. In addition to that, we're getting a little hypothetical here, but it could happen. Democrats could just hold up whoever Trump nominates until the 2020 presidential election, kind of flip Republicans' argument about Merrick Garland uh, back at them. Uh, Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, who does sit on this key judiciary committee that deals with Supreme Court nominations, suggested as much to a political podcast uh, last week. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that we have a 4-4 Supreme Court totally divided along ideological lines, a country totally divided along ideological lines, a Congress and a White House split, and basically nothing getting done until after the 2020 presidential election. That's how much hinges on Thursday's hearing and November's midterm election. How is the White House reacting? How has Trump reacted? The White House has stood by their guy, Judge Kavanaugh, at least publicly. Privately, my White House colleagues have reported that some of Trump's allies think he sees Kavanaugh interchangeable with any other of the number of people who were on his shortlist when this whole process began. Uh, but it's notable that they've made it up to Thursday's hearing fully defending Kavanaugh. Uh, Republicans in Congress and outside groups are falling in line with that. Um, in addition to that, President Trump has outright attacked Dr. Ford and Deborah Ramirez, the second accuser, in ways that have really startled his Republican allies in some of these key swing votes in the Senate by suggesting, for example, she's making this up because she didn't go straight to the FBI right when this happened 36 years ago, which totally misses all the research we understand about how victims of sexual assault act immediately after such a trauma. But my point is the president has given a an umbrella for Kavanaugh to defend himself vociferously, for Republicans to defend Kavanaugh vociferously. And so far, the White House is standing by him. So you've laid out what is a particularly contentious moment in American politics. Perhaps in the course of American history, it's among the most contentious. We have two parties who seem to be making decisions about the highest court in our nation along nothing but party lines. We have a completely divided country as we head into the midterm elections. Do you think this is a low in party politics in this country? It's tough to say in the moment, mm -hmm. but I look back at the Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill hearings, of course, to get Justice Thomas on the court, and there was a similar accusation made. Um, there are so many parallels to that moment and now. That was decades ago, and we still talk about it, and we still see that moment, uh, both for the way the accuser was treated by by men in power uh, and for the way the nation was so partisan and divided based on their particular politics as, as a black mark mm -hmm. on U.S. history. And I, I just have to think that this goes down in the history books as a very similar situation. Okay. So then just to wrap this up, as we head into the next few days, what are the key moments to be watching for? I am definitely watching Thursday's hearing, like the rest of the world. Uh, I would watch Senator Jeff Flake. He's not going to be asking any questions, but I want to see how he reacts. Mm -hmm. Because he could be a barometer for many of those other senators who aren't on the committee who are undecided about Kavanaugh's credibility and are watching in TVs in their offices. I'm going to watch Dr. Ford and, and how she comes across in a situation that it's important to note she isn't trained for. She told the Post she didn't even want to have happen, um, but has decided to try to step up and share her story. 
And then I'm going to watch the committee vote Friday. That'll be very critical. Uh, again, it won't stall or completely end the nomination, but but it could cut off one of its legs. Uh, and then I'm watching Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to see how determined he is, if things don't go well for Kavanaugh, to still put him up for a vote as soon as this weekend or next week. All right, Amber, that sounds like a busy weekend for you. So I hope you get a break. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? For more live updates about developments in the Kavanaugh confirmation process, you can visit WashingtonPost.com. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the infallible Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. <laughs>